But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thanks, Lauren. Good morning, church. Good to be together this morning. Thanks to the youth team for beginning to lead us into God's presence today. We're battling the tech demons again, so let's be in prayer against those guys. Uh, they tend to try to work to distract. You know, Satan continues to try to work within the church to distract his people and to compromise his mission. Exactly what we just heard read. So on a small scale, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. We look at this passage, and I think the right question is, how could this happen? If you've been tracking with us through Acts, we're, we're, we've, there's been a building crescendo to the work of the Holy Spirit in His church, and then we hit Acts 5. How could this happen? And I suppose there's a few ways we might answer or look to answer that question. Uh, there's a few ways that I guess we could take the question. How, how could such sin exist within the church with the full presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit that we have been seeing week in and week out in this group of disciples? We could also ask, how could God be so harsh? We could ask, how could Luke include this story and why now? Why here in the story? I guess perhaps the biggest question for us today could be, how can God be so inconsistent? Well, he's, he's the hypocrite. The two people walk into a church and give thousands of dollars and they're struck down dead. A man walks into a school and murders children and walks out alive. He gets a Big Mac. We've got some big questions. God's Word gives us big answers. And we're left with big prayers. Would you join me in prayer again this morning? God, we turn to Your Word 
But through Your Word, we want to see You. We want to hear from You. We thank You for Your Word. Every, every word. And we need a reminder again today. We are so quick to forget or lose perspective on who You are, what You've done, what You've promised, and that You are present with us. Help us become more aware of Your presence as we engage with You this morning, as we hear from Your Word, as we consider the world, the brokenness, the sin, the evil that has not changed. And yet, let us be aware that the greatest potential for sin is right inside of our own heart. Yet, You are holy and You are good. And we need Your grace, mercy, and forgiveness again today. We come to You, Lord. We pray humbly, but with open hearts, open minds. ask You now to speak for Your glory and for our joy. Amen. So we dig in, and I, I've got just a bunch of notes, and I, to be honest, as I was reviewing this morning, I'm not even sure what order to take them. And so let's see whether the Lord leads. This passage is really a continuation of Acts chapter 4. Luke does this intentionally. There's a contrast. A very sharp contrast, isn't it? At the end of Acts chapter 4, this incredible picture of the church giving generously to all who had need so that there was no one that had need. We see great grace and great power upon the church. And in the very next passage, great hypocrisy. Great generosity followed by hypocrisy. Great grace followed by great fear. This man Barnabas affirmed for his generosity. This man Ananias instantly condemned and judged for his hypocrisy. And I think we ask, why is this story here? Why is this account? Not, not why did it happen, although we, can, we, will, we, will, we will answer that. And I think it will be a convicting answer. But we, Luke, what are you thinking? Luke, you're writing the story of the early church. Why include this? Well, Luke is a historian, and he's looking to give an accurate history of the church. And he doesn't gloss over the messy parts. And as a tangent, but I think a powerful truth that we draw from this passage and passages like this one in Scripture, it's one of the big answers that we're seeking when we have big questions the big kind of God, where are you questions? God, what are you doing? God, how could it be? Why are you not consistent, at least from our perspective? Here's a big answer. How do you know the Bible is true? When our culture continues to want to undermine it, degrade it, devalue it, dismiss it, 
how do you know the how, how do we know that the Bible is true? It's passages like this one. Why not just scrub it out? The early church had every reason to alter the story in the face of all the persecution, in the face of all the challenges. It would have, this would have been an easy one to wipe out. With all the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst, to leave this account of the fullness of evil in the church, even amongst believers, it's a pretty bold move. It gives me hope that what we have in Scripture has been unaltered. It's there plainly before us. If this is the normal Christian life, as we've been talking about week in and week out, Luke is showing us what this looks like to live in and with the power of the Spirit, then this picture isn't hopeful, but it is honest. And the normal Christian life, in reality, is one that is never done growing. It is never free of sin and temptation. And always must be on guard against the work of the enemy. If what we have in this book is unaltered, and it's the plain testimony of men who came to experience the incredible love and redemption of God and came to see Jesus as the true Messiah, Lord, King, and Savior. Well, we still can walk by faith. You can still choose to not believe their testimony. But passages like this one give great assurance that what we hold is an unaltered testimony. That certainly doesn't guarantee faith. It didn't for those that were living in the very midst and seeing things they could not deny and yet dismissed. It's still a heart and faith matter. But that should give us some hope. Second, I think, big answer is what we see in a passage like this one reminds us when we see events in our world today that this world is not our home. That this world is still full of evil and the work of the enemy. And it's, the enemy still fills hearts according to his purposes to fan the flame of fleshly desires. And that Jesus has one greater work of redemption remaining. The new heavens and the new earth. Not this one. We still live in a world broken by sin. Now there's certainly a warning here. And I think it's right to look at it and and recognize probably how close it is to each of our heart. 
the right response that rippled through the church was great fear. That's the right response. The wrong response is, how could God do this? Why, why is He being so harsh? What about grace? If that's our question, we prove we don't understand the seriousness of sin. And if we trivialize sin, we devalue or disgrace both God's holiness and the cross. Someone once said, if we're shocked at the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, we ourselves may have fallen into their same sin. We need to address the sin because I think it is within us. Another wrong response is to say, well, clearly, clearly my sin's not as, as bad as it could be. I'm still living and breathing. In reality, if we understand the sin, and, and by first read, it may be difficult to grasp. How, how could this... How could this have warranted that kind of judgment? So we do need to rightly understand it to take warning, but let's not forget and not miss that this is a story about God's holiness. It's a reminder of who He is and that He has not changed. Much more than it is about the depth of man's sin. That just doesn't work biblically. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. James 2 says if you've broken one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. It doesn't take much. And certainly this doesn't work if you think about the very one who is standing before Ananias, Peter himself. And if we're trying to compare the depth of sin, look at Peter's sin. I don't know, just a few months earlier in the courtyard, denying that he even knew Jesus, calling down curses, basically swearing a vow. Talk about deception, rebellion, lying. And yet Jesus pursued him and restored him. Here's Ananias and Sapphira struck down. And to be sure, their sin was serious, as is all sin. And this one, I think, does present great danger for the church. Hypocrisy is at the heart of this. Not just the deception, but the hypocrisy that continues to haunt the church. It's a sobering reminder of how subtle sin can be, right? Who knows even how, how and where this sin began, except for in the depths of the heart. Because Ananias and Sapphira actually are coming with great generosity. They're giving in a way that very few of us have probably ever given. They sell a property. It doesn't say how valuable. But they come and they give almost everything. The reality is the issue isn't a generosity issue. It's a hypocrisy issue. Hear it again and look for that theme. A man named Ananias and his wife sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. Only a part of it. Laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Here's the key here. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? See, they weren't under compulsion to give. Not everyone was giving to the same degree. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias likely had vowed to sell this property and give all to the church. And then came and gave less than all. Now had he come and said, you know what? We misspoke. We were too eager. And we actually, this is too difficult for us. We, we, must, we must just bring a, a portion. There would have been grace upon them. The hypocrisy is that they came believing no one would know the difference. That they would look just like Barnabas who had given all of the proceeds. This is hypocrisy. Pretending to be something that we are not. That's the literal root. It'll go deeper. Jesus takes it deeper. But the literal root of the Greek word hypocrite is an actor. And in Greek theater, often actors would simply hold up a mask for the scene that they were in. And it was usually a smaller cast. So in a different scene, those same actors would hold up a different mask to play a different role. They were hypocrites. Change of scenes, change of role, change of face, a different mask. And in that, we can probably all relate. Trying to live with integrity and be the same in every scene of our life, whether work or with friends or at church, we know how easy it is to put up a mask. That's the literal translation. It goes deeper. It goes to the pretending to be something that we're not. Sometimes those masks are simply withholding or hiding who we truly are. But here's Ananias and Sapphira looking to be something that they aren't. Trying to pass off a greater generosity. And in that, we have probably all too can relate. Trying to look better than we are when it comes to writing our resume or interviewing for a job. Or in the presence of certain people that we want to befriend or be close to or people with influence or positions of power. But the spiritual danger of hypocrisy goes even deeper. And Jesus gives the insight to this in Matthew chapter 23. It's the woe chapter. Woe to you Pharisees. Again and again he says that, but the heart of it is hypocrisy. And what Jesus indicates, that's a good echo, <laughs> pause that. Should I try again? 
We're praying against the demons, huh? Got it, Devin? What Jesus indicates of the heart of the hypocrite, the true heart of the Pharisee is verse 5. Matthew 23, verse 5. Everything they do is done for men to see. That's the heart of the hypocrite. So there's the mask and the hiding and the pretending to be something that we're not, but the, the heart of it is to be seen, is to be acknowledged, affirmed, is to receive the accolades of man. That's the heart of the hypocrite that Christ despises. When Jesus spoke, preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1, see if this doesn't line up. Remember? Apparently, Ananias and Sapphira didn't remember this. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Is that not a commentary directly for Ananias and Sapphira. Living the hypocrite. Looking to not just be more than they were, but to be seen, to be noticed, to make a name for themselves. Likely Barnabas had just come in private. It's why he's esteemed later. And just gave generously. God's convicted me. I want to serve. Here's what I have. Here's what I give. Later, he's esteemed and affirmed. The story ripples through the church. And Barnabas probably denied it, at least in that humility of, no, no, no. And here's Ananias and Sapphira looking to make that same name for themselves. Look at us. And even when they had the chance, even when Sapphira was given the chance, is this the amount, Sapphira? Yes. Outright lies. They've contrived together. It's the spirit of Babel. Look at us. The name that we can make. Look what we can do. Craving recognition, honor, fame, and power. There's a right warning in hypocrisy. And yet, I don't want to dwell here. Because it's not where Luke dwells. In fact, you have to read it and reread it and dig to try to find out the depth of this sin. And there's other passages that hit it even more strictly. And yes, I, I, don't, I don't want to diminish or trivialize sin. I don't want to be in danger of that. It would be easy to jump to the application of what about your secret sins? What about the ones that you keep in or, and, and continue to live a mask, a facade? What about those? It's really not that we are sinful that's the issue. It's that we don't come to Christ with our sin. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us 
to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. And if that's where we need to be convicted today, and if as we come to this passage, we hear it and that strikes our heart, then praise God, we have opportunity to draw near. He's pursuing us, not judging us. Jesus has taken the penalty. Jesus has taken the judgment. And so respond as God is leading. But what I want us to see here, and I believe this passage is primarily about, is the holiness of God. Lest we forget that God is a holy God and He has not changed. There's a couple examples in Scripture that I think will bring some insight into this as we ask this question, these many questions of how could this be? How could it happen? Why was God so harsh here? He doesn't always judge sin like this. Judgment is deferred for those apart from Christ. I think what's so striking is that if this if this example wasn't here at this point in redemptive history, we could look back to the Old Testament examples and say, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. God is a more wrathful God in the Old Testament. He's an angry God and don't upset Him and He might strike you down or swallow you up. But Jesus came and Jesus represents grace and love. A more accurate biblical truth would be Jesus took the wrath of God upon Him. He took it all. And therefore, all who trust in Him, instead of receiving that wrath of God, instead of being struck down because of our sin, we live because of Christ. But what's striking is, this is post Crucifixion and resurrection. And God's wrath and justice comes just like it did in the Old Testament. And I think because of that, many have just swept right over this passage or tried to dismiss it in various ways. And what we need to see is that God has not changed. He does not change. His holiness is true And we will all have to measure up to the holiness of God. And none will in Christ we are seen as righteous. And so I think the reminder here is essential for the church. And as we look at these couple Old Testament passages of God's judgment against sin, which we might say that that was relatively trivial compared to the other sin and evil we see in the world. Why did God act like that then? I think there's a link. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? Leviticus 10. Don't answer that. <laughs> Leviticus 10 too. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Aaron was 
the brother of Moses, the first high priest following the Exodus, Nadab and Abihu, so also in the lineage of priests, they serve within the tabernacle. They each took their censer and put fire in it and laid incense in it and offered it to the Lord. Now what the verse says is they offered unauthorized fire, which had not been commanded. There was a time and a place. They were simply going through the motions, it seems. Just took it upon themselves to, well, this seems good. It was good before. Let's do it again. And fire came from before the Lord and consumed them and they died. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Certainly there must have been a great fear that swept through the camp. What, what just happened? This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be holy. You may say sanctified in your translation. I will be holy. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I don't know how, but he held his peace. His two sons had just died in the presence of the Lord. And we can read this and say, this seems harsh. Reminds us when we come close to the holiness of God apart from a mediator, mediator, we do not live. There's a reminder of the holiness of God and I think the timing is key. This is immediately after the erection of the tabernacle. A specific fulfillment of covenantal promise. God would dwell with His people. That's what's taking place. That's what's being established. And God is reminding His people of holiness. Then we go to Achan. Remember Achan? Maybe a little more of a well-known example. Joshua chapter 7. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. God said, go up and take the land. I will be with you, but devote all to me. That's the devoted things. He took some and hid them for himself. The anger of the Lord burned against all Israel because of this one man. Now all Israel is under judgment because of one man's sin of deception. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Notice the plural there when it was one man. And we've seen this many, many times in Scripture. How close we are to the very same heart. And how as soon as we start to say, but it's not me, it's him. We've got the wrong heart. And we are a people. And God is after a people and redeeming a people. And so the harsh judgment comes upon Achan, and this time God judges him through the people, and they stone him and his whole family. It's extremely harsh. And we have the same questions of, how could it be? 
And once again, this is immediately following the fulfillment of covenantal promise, where God is establishing His people in the new land. There's an interesting point here. The Greek word nephidzo is a rare word. It's used to describe Ananias' sin of withholding. He took, he kept, he kept back some of the proceeds of the sale. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, from Hebrew to Greek, it's called the Septuagint. Done a long, long time ago. That word nephidzo shows up one time in all of the Old Testament translation into Greek. Right here in Joshua 7 to describe the same action that Achan took. When it says Achan stole, took, withheld, kept, it could be translated embezzled. It's the same sin. There's a link here. And I think in all three there's a link. The progress of God's mission gets interrupted by sin in the camp, so to speak. And all of these are immediately after the fulfillment of the covenant promise. Maybe a distinct period in salvation history would be one way to say it. God's gracious and redemptive work was being realized in extravagant ways in the time following the Exodus, in the time coming into the promised land, and now in the time of the church when the Spirit has come. And in every one of them, there is a distinct and powerful reminder of God's holiness and that He's called His people to be set apart as holy. So it's not that Nadab and Abihu or Achan or Ananias and Sapphira were any worse sinners than anyone else or any of us. If that was the case, there would be no church if God continued to judge as He judged then. None of us would measure up. None of us would escape God's fire. So no, 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 it's not that. Though there's danger and there's warning in that sin and that lives within all of us and maybe we rightly come to God with it and for confession, for grace and for mercy in our time of need. What we need to see here is that God has not changed. God's holiness will not be trivialized. And God's Word will not be compromised. And we could rightly say or ask, so God, do we need to see or be reminded of this again today? 2,000 years have have come and gone. Because what we are praying for is for renewal, for revival. It's been a hundred years since the holiness movement swept through this nation. And we look into our world and it seems like week in and week out, and I don't want to become calloused to it. But as Catherine and I were talking about the school shooting this week and being reminded of nearly 20 years ago Columbine, and how it basically that basically stopped the nation. And this shooting was more severe. More tragic. And we're becoming almost calloused to it.
We're praying for and seeking for the work of the Spirit, the renewal of God within His church, within us. Lord, does it have anything to do with us? Why we're not seeing the same reminders of Your holiness in our midst today? Does it have anything to do with the same heart existing within the church? Unchecked. Men and women calling for attention and glory. Looking to make a name for themselves. When God has set apart His people as holy. The only way that this world comes to know Jesus is by looking to His church. Anything that dims the light of the Gospel in His people And we know that Satan hasn't changed much either. He loves to fan into flame the desire that's within us all to tempt us to doubt God, to do what seems best in our own eyes, and perhaps to believe the biggest lie of all, that sin is not that big of a deal. God reminds us here that He's fully aware of and capable of removing sin from the church. Exodus 34.6 is also true when we ask, Lord, where is the Ananias-type judgment today for the church? When we see pastors and priests or evangelists, denominational leaders, greedy, thirsty for power, Exodus 34.6 is true. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Lord, if it has anything to do with us and our attitude and our heart, refine us, Lord. I think it does remain true today that what we see here The biggest threat for the church is still within, not from without. And the enemy's at work because if he can dim the light, and I'd say he's probably succeeded, basically off the unscientific conversations that I have in daily life, oh, the church, it's full of hypocrites. I want to say, and you'd fit right in, but that doesn't usually go over well. (laughs) And if if by hypocrisy we 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 are simply saying we we try to look better than we are, then that is true. And I want to be so much better than I am. But if by hypocrisy we mean we're, what we're doing is really for our own attention and our own af- affirmation, then yes, that's, then we are in trouble. God judges the spirit of Babel. Look at us. Look what we can accomplish. We'll make a name for ourselves, and there's no other name except for Jesus.
So with this herky-jerky message and a herky-jerky tech day, we're going to come, I pray, to some big prayers. Pray for the heart of Barnabas who understood the grace, great grace of God. God, give us that heart. Pray for the heart of John the Baptist who said when Jesus came and Jesus was gaining attention and a following, the following that John the Baptist used to have, what did he say? He must increase. I must decrease. That's my role. Pray for the heart of John the Baptist. Pray for humility. This is a risky prayer. Lord, teach me humility. A far better prayer is, Lord, keep me humble. But you can't pray that prayer until he's answered the first one. And that often comes through pain. So God, teach us humility. Lord, make me last and least. Jesus said, Mark 10, 43, whoever would be great among you, among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Lord, give us this heart. I'm also struck by this passage that may we live in such a way that if God doesn't show up, nothing of significance will happen. If God's not in it, would anything that we're doing even stop or crumble? This is how the early church was living. And apart from the discernment of Peter... I don't think there was any way for Peter to know this except for the discernment through the power of the Spirit that Ananias and Sapphira, how would he have known at that point what they received, not public record then, for the property? These are men and women walking with the Spirit. We live in such a way and pray in such a way that the only explanation is God. One final note. Why was the Spirit so grieved? I guess two final notes because this probably could have been a whole, a whole sermon and some need to hear it today within the church. The Holy Spirit is God. And Peter affirms it right here. Ananias, you have lied and grieved the Holy Spirit. And later, just a couple sentences later, you have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God and He is with us. And why is He so grieved? Remember, the Spirit is a person, not a force. He can be grieved and He can be hurt. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if it's not because even in all that the Spirit had been doing, in and through them, it still wasn't enough. 
it still wasn't enough to change and convict every man's heart and to draw everyone to the king. I think in that the spirit is grieved immensely. And likely the spirit is grieved because it's still not complete. The rescue mission work of redemption that God has begun since the creation, since the garden, is still not finished. There's still more to go. And the Spirit is deeply grieved. God is still with us, even when we forget or fail to see Him. I pray that we won't miss Him this morning. I invite the team to come back and prepare to lead us in song. Here's some big prayers, maybe to summarize a few that I've shared. Take your pick. God, remind us of your holiness. Lord Jesus, teach us humility. Holy Spirit, show us our hypocrisy. And perhaps He will draw us near. Perhaps He will remind us of His presence and His power today. Perhaps we'll become a people of both great grace and great fear. A people who know and worship one great God. I'll give you a moment to pray those. Go ahead and close your eyes. It does help with the distractions. Although nowhere in Scripture do we see God's people closing their eyes in prayer. I sometimes find it helpful. God, remind us of Your holiness. However You see fit, God. We just need that reminder again and again. I don't believe it's going to be in a way that You did in Acts 5. But Lord, teach us healthy fear that You have not changed and that You are holy and You are perfect. And apart from Jesus, we are under that same wrath. Teach us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And remind us of Your great grace. Lord Jesus, teach us humility. And if that means humble us, Lord, then humble us that we would walk with You, trust You, need You, depend on You, surrender to You, find our life and breath in You alone. And Holy Spirit, show us our hypocrisy Show us where we hold up the mask. Show us where we want the approval and the attention of others more than yours. Convict us, Lord. That we would come to you to know you more fully, to love you more deeply, to worship you more completely for your glory and for our joy. Amen. As these guys lead us in song, let us respond. This week, um, Pastor Ben brought before us the nature of God's otherness, His holiness. And, uh, and we surrender to that, don't we? We leave from this place as people that know that it's by His grace that has completely caught us up in His adoption, being His beloved. It is His holiness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to His. And so we thank 
God for that word uh, in Acts. Um, and as you go, church, go from this place knowing that you're radically clean, that you're radically holy by the finished work of Jesus. I heard someone once say uh, that this isn't true, but it, it, it's uh, hypothetically true based on the grace of God, that if you have Jesus with a thief on the cross beside him, gets to heaven with Jesus, and he said, Jesus explaining to him that he was actually a king once he said yes to Jesus. He went from being a thief to a king. And the thief said in heaven, uh, if I had known I was a king, I wouldn't have behaved like a thief. You are radically holy. Jesus has completed the work. There's nothing else we can add. And the Holy Spirit is with you. Go from this place as people that are holy. Go from this place as people with whom the Holy Spirit loves with all of who he is. And he's committed to partnering with you to make that work its way to the outside. Go from this place in peace. Amen.